This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Thank you. Esther will be uh, lecturing on Seeing Things Introductory, forays into the baptized imagination. I love that we're working on imagination themes because I'm going to be actually touching indirectly uh, on that tonight. But I think there's a great dearth of development of a Christian view of imagination in the evangelical church today. So that's wonderful to have. Now, how do I go forward? There's an outline of where we're headed. Now... I heard Ben wasn't going to make it a couple yesterday, I guess, and wondered what what would I want to do. And this is a bunch of ideas I've worked on a long time ago. Some of them are in the book that I've written, Beyond Identity. Um, and but I've I've wanted to put together guilt and shame and their interaction with each other, and to emphasize how both lead into the gospel and make a a, a wonderful um, contribution to the downside of of, uh, our psychological experience of ourselves. Uh, So there's no no way of avoiding the downside of what I'm talking about tonight, guilt and shame. These are really heavy, um, heavy issues. Um, So to to forge ahead here. There's a wonderful verse in the Bible uh, that I've always loved. And some people, when I quote it, standing alone, some people say, that's not in the Bible. Um, and, and that's interesting to say. It, it says, I do not understand myself. That's Paul in Romans uh, 7. Uh, I don't understand myself. I've had people tell me that's not in the Bible. Anyway, it is in the Bible. It's the Apostle Paul um, reflecting on himself about his inability to do the good things that he wants to do um, and his inability to stop doing the bad things that he wants to, to not do. Uh, and he's, he's a Christian, he has this power of God, and yet there's a lingering spirit of, uh, of or, or presence of the power of sin within him which foils him again and again uh, <clears throat> in terms of accomplishing what he wants to do experiencing what he wants to experience, saying what he wants to say. Um, and I find that wonderful because it means it's okay for me to not understand myself. It's okay for you to not understand yourself. It's okay also for us not necessarily to understand each other very well without a lot of work, and without a lot of uh, thinking through and talking through. I love it that the Bible is a deeply realistic book. It's not avoiding any of the of the uh, the downside of life, the difficult things of life that that uh, many religions, frankly, avoid, and, and many versions of Christianity, unhappily, uh, avoid. Um, doesn't that, that struck me when I first read the Bible? 
I read the Bible in one dose for three days. And it, well, after I first really collided with the Christian faith, wrote down everything I didn't agree and believe in it. But the thing that struck me is that, good grief, this is a really negative picture of a bunch of bums of people, except for Jesus. You know? And Jesus just stands out. The rest of them are just losers. So, so many, just the, the heroes, the religious heroes, religions of the world lift up their heroes and they're, and they're on pedestals and they're here and they're there and they're to be held down before and worshiped. And, and the Bible, good grief, the best of them you can find in Hebrews 11, you know, and, and, the chapter to do with heroes and their rapists and liars and terrified and backing off from faith and all sorts of things at other times in their life, but somehow, despite all that, stood and served God heroically in all sorts of times in their lives, enough to make a difference in the whole history of their nation. Um, so I do want to clarify how these two emotions and theological realities relate to each other. And that they, that might help us to live well in the light of God's truth. <clears throat> I think it's important because shame and guilt potentially hold extremely negative messages to us about ourselves. Um, it, these are both felt and experienced ourselves about ourselves. Um, we deal with each one <clears throat> daily. Um, guilt and shame, feeling Guilt and shame are both unpleasant experiences, but they're also different from each other. Um, from their use in the Bible, they're not so much different um, in terms of the qualities of the emotion that they are, but they point to two different ways we're being evaluated, two different yardsticks, as it were, two different measuring measures of of who we are, how we live, how we behave, how we behaved. Um, with fascinating interactions between them. Um, an interesting way to learn or to sort of clarify the meaning of words is to contrast them to their opposites. And that starts you right off with a bang with these two words. Um, in the Bible, the opposite of guilt is moral innocence. That's fairly straightforward. Um, but the opposite of shame is not moral innocence. The opposite of shame, again and again and again through the scriptures, is glory and honor. Glory and honor. What we might call greatness or heroism uh, in our language today. God says, in judgment, I will turn their glory into shame. That's talking to someone who's an idolater who glories in all the wrong things. I will turn the very thing you glory into shame, into its opposite. Or speaking of one whose life's values are upside down, God says they glory in their shame. Exactly reversed in terms of glory valuing something that is, that is their shame. So guilt is falling short of moral innocence. Moral righteousness is felt as we transgress God's laws or maybe the rules of our own culture and family, whatever we come up with that may not be part of God's law. But shame is falling short of glory or honor, which also comes from God, but from our culture and from our family background and so on. So we have a mixture of both these uh, centers of measurement that are from the scripture and also 
perhaps corrupted by our culture and our family experience, whatever. Um, the experience of dishonor being unheroic. Uh, I want to speak of three ways that guilt and shame um, relate to each other. Were there any extra of those? those? Great, thank you. There's one. There's something on the way back, friends. <laughs> it's making its way back there. <laughs> thank you. Uh, <clears throat> guilt and shame uh, uh, relate to each other in three different ways. Uh, they can be in sync with each other, in focus with each other. Um, and I'll start with that, that we can experience them together. Um, let's say you tell a lie to somebody, to a, to a close friend, because you couldn't bear to have them know the truth. Uh, so you lied to them. You might experience feelings of guilt as a result of that. You know lying is wrong in the Bible. You know you get angry at anybody else who lies to you. So you realize it's wrong, and you feel guilty for having lied to them. Uh, but you also may feel shame for slightly different reasons. It's because you thought you were a strong enough person to tell the truth. You didn't think you were such a wimp that you had to lie to them and, and, and outmaneuver the truth uh, because you'd be able to just tell them the truth. But you didn't. You weren't. So you're disgusted with yourself, you're ashamed of yourself, you experience what I've been calling negative heroism. Uh, in other words, heroism not, not, not down to zero, not no heroism, but heroism that is a negative number. Minus zero, less than zero. You experience both guilt and shame at the same time for the same reason, telling a lie. Uh, in the midst of that, those two feelings are hard to distinguish from each other. Uh, and you don't need to really distinguish them from each other. They're all balled up together uh, in, in, uh, in your own feelings. Um, I think of Peter denying Jesus three times just after Jesus got arrested and he was, as, they was, he was waiting with, as they were interrogating Jesus. Um, af- just after he promised Jesus... All these bums, meaning the other disciples, may d- deny you, but I won't. I will never deny you. But here he goes and he denies them three times in fast motion to to uh, to the authorities. And Jesus looks at him, and the cock crows, and he realizes exactly what has happened. And it says he wept bitterly, and he basically ran away. He would like to dig a hole in the ground, bury himself in the ground, and stay there a long time. Um, that's a mixture of guilt and shame. You can imagine that. Would imagine Peter's the, the the interaction going on in his mind. This is what I would never do. Other people could do this. I don't do this. I will not. I would never do this. But he just did it. What do you do? Uh, so it's a hugely negative um, verdict on himself that no one else is lowering on him, but he's doing it himself. Guilt and shame. Um, for the same reason, for the same occasion, uh, end up reinforcing each other, uh, make a more powerful negative or uh, disincentive, whatever. Again, 
Okay, guilt and shame can happen at the same time for the same reason. Guilt and shame can also be completely independent of each other. Uh, we can experience intense shame for things that have nothing to do with moral wrong. We can, to start with the obvious, we can, all of us, know something about what it is to be ashamed of our own bodies. We hang out or sink in in the wrong places uh, to fit the standards of Hollywood. We might feel shame that we're physically uncoordinated, especially at a bad moment in time. Uh, We trip and fall down in front of a crowd of people. We're meant to be very dignified or whatever, and we do something ridiculous. We drop uh, we spill soup on somebody's rug, we do, whatever. Uh, we do all sorts of things, and uh, which we don't plan on doing, but which makes us make us feel ashamed of ourselves. Um, for football players, it's always a, a subject of shame to drop a pass in the end zone. Uh, you don't drop a pass in the end zone, but if you do, it's really a bad thing. Or if you strike out in baseball when the bases are loaded and there are only two outs and you're behind, that's a bad thing. That's something that you can be ashamed of doing because you had set up to, to, to win everything, to be the great hero, and you struck out. Um, we can feel ashamed of telling a joke that nobody laughs at. You can feel ashamed of saying with great seriousness something that everybody does laugh at. Hard to win. Uh, we can feel ashamed of being neglected or rejected by another person or a group of people. We can feel ashamed of our social status. One of Jesus' parables quotes the unjust manager saying, when he, faced with un- when he is faced with unemployment, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. Your social class, economic class, can be an object of shame if you're poorer than you would want to be with certain people, but also it's a subject of shame when you're with a richer group of, you know, if you're richer than you want to be with a different group of people. So your economic status can be a, a subject of shame either way. None of these, I hope you can see as I go on along, none of these are moral issues. None of these are moral failures. They can be extremely deep and powerful negative feelings about yourself. But there are no moral violations here. You haven't gone across. You haven't crossed the boundaries of, of any transgressions uh, before God. No laws are broken, and yet there, there's an intense shame. Or it can be an intense shame, self-hatred, self-disgust, self-loathing, all this stuff. Uh, sometimes more than if you had done a moral wrong, or sometimes shame for what you look like, what you said, or said that isn't moral problem, but, but where you feel a deeper shame than if you'd made a moral, uh, a, a real sin. We can feel unacceptable, defective. The shame tends to distract us from moral issues. Um, and and uh, it, it is there despite its freedom from any moral reality at all. Okay, that's the second interaction between guilt and shame. They can coexist together for the same reason. They can exist quite independently. Uh, The third is that shame and guilt can work against each other. They can pull you in opposite directions. You can feel ashamed of doing the right thing or not doing the wrong thing. I always think of 
Dickens' novel Hard Times, where one of the characters was trying to seduce this woman, the wife of somebody else, who's a bit of a jerk, so you wonder. Um, but uh, they're set up for a time when he's going to pick her up and they're going to go on run off together. But at the last minute, she decides to be faithful to her husband. And he is shattered to have failed at adultery. In other words, he's failed at being the heroic stud. And he's shattered because she left and, and the whole plan run off together has, has just exploded. Uh, but deep self-hatred as a result of that. Um, the strongest example, maybe certainly one of them in the New Testament, is that Jesus warned that we can be ashamed of knowing him. Luke nine twenty six. Amazing. Morally, that's about as high as you can get, knowing, following, obeying Jesus Christ. And yet, you can be ashamed of that. It can be unheroic to you. That's something that only wimps do. Uh, so, I won't tell anyone that I follow Jesus. Or so I won't tell certain people that I follow Jesus. <clears throat> There's an interesting example I often mentioned of <clears throat> in the scripture itself of King Herod at his birthday party when he was hoping to show off his benevolence and power. His daughter, or sort of adoptive, do- adoptive daughter, danced beautifully, and so beautifully that he says, I'll give you anything you want up to half my kingdom. Uh, she didn't know what to ask for. She went and got some coaching from her mother, uh, who was a key player in this. And she asked for John the Baptist's head on a plate. And so she comes running back into the birthday party. She says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a plate now in the, in the birthday party, uh, not sometime in the future. Uh, and it says the Herod is deeply distressed. Now, I, if I had more time, I would have read this and then asked you, why was he deeply distressed? What was going on? What was the nature of the conflict? And, and that's an important thing. You see, he was caught between his sense of moral conviction that John the Baptist is a prophet of God, a godly man. He listened to him. He called him in. He talked to him a lot. He's listening to John scared the wits out of him. Some verses say, sound like he was, uh, Herod actually liked him and wanted to spend time with him. Others that he hated him. Uh, but but he obviously had respect. John the Baptist was a prophet of God respected by the whole nation. But he had just made this huge promise in front of all the beautiful people in Jerusalem. Uh, how could he say, oh, I can't give you that. Can you ask for something else in front of all these people who are looking, for, looking to the great Roman leader who's uh, certainly not going to let some pipsqueak like John get in the way of his... Uh, in terms of Roman law. He wasn't a pipsqueak at all in terms of Jewish religion. He was much more better known than Jesus was, actually, at that time. But, but uh, a, a no-count person to, to Herod, why would you let that stand in the way of answering your promise to, this, to, you, to your own daughter? Uh, so he's greatly distressed, caught between his moral convictions and his need to be heroic in the eyes of all the people who are there. Um, and you know what the story, how the story worked out. His desire to be heroic outpulled his desire to be moral. And he had John's head delivered, uh, brought to the birthday party on a plate. This is a question of being caught in the crossfire between one's moral principles and one's desire for heroism. Uh, 
and, and uh, when they're both in very different places, we can expect to meet crossfires at unpredicted times. Okay, let's. I want to go on and see how how this works out. Um, sometimes they work together. Sometimes they work independently. Sometimes they work against each other. It's rather like if you have two bosses uh, who most of the time agree with each other, but not always, and uh, it, it makes it makes life difficult. One says turn right, the other says turn left. What do you do? You're stuck in, in having to disappoint one of them at least. But as fallen people. We are disintegrated. We don't have our ducks all in order in terms of the things, the measuring sticks that we look to of how we live our lives. Where they're not all neat, neatly uh, stacked and in nice piles where they're meant to be. They're, we are disintegrated. Uh, there's a wonderful prayer in the, in the book of Psalms saying, Unite my heart, O Lord, to fear your name. That's a wonderful prayer. Unite my heart. Bring things together rather than bring a lot of them to be out uh, and... and uh, fighting against each other. So your moral principles, if we look more seriously at what, a little more detail what we're talking about here, are basically much easier to identify than, than uh, heroic ones. Um, that, that's, well, they, they may not, that's not because they're easy, but it's because we don't think much in terms of heroism. We're more used to thinking of morals. We think there they are in the Ten Commandments, there they are in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, we know what they are. Uh, and and we're, we're more familiar with categories of morality than we are categories of glory and honor and, and greatness, heroism, excellence are much more fuzzy, I think, in our minds. We, and besides, we think heroes are things for little kids uh, and nobody after the age 10 bothers with heroes. Total rubbish. Uh, and, but, but it means we're unskilled and un, uh, maneuvering around the world of, of the imagination that includes our heroes and, and that, that is at work in us uh, all the time anyway. So uh, we, we have moral principles which come from the Ten Commandments and all the rest of the Bible, Old and New Testament. We obey them and we, we uh, also break them and transgress them. When we do, we're found guilty, whether we feel guilty or not. We are guilty when we break them. Feeling guilt often comes from breaking God's rules, but also from and, and, and calls for punishment, uh, creates a fear of punishment. But we also deal always with rules that we have in our heads that may come from our culture, our background, more than they do from the Bible. So we, we, we're always uh, dealing with that um, somewhat uh, confusing um, standard. Along with God's laws, we're apt to, again, as I was saying, we have to have a mixture here. The experience of shame comes from violating your sense of what is glorious, honorable, and heroic. It may very well, as I said, with lying, come with breaking one of God's laws. But it may be rooted in all kinds of other things that you transgress depends on, the real thing is it depends on whatever represents to you honor, glory, the heroic, uh, greatness, excellence. You would like to be that way. You would like to be that sort of person, not this sort of person. As you think of, I got into this and interested in this and working on the whole theme of identity, a key part of your identity is who are you trying to become? Who do you want to be? Uh, as you grow, what sort of um, 
model do you shape yourself around as you look into the future, uh, when you try and realize something in your own future? We, it doesn't mean that we all have heroes that we, whose names we know and we put posters about them on our walls. Uh, that's fair enough. But, but uh, heroism is much more uh, uh, slippery than that and, and uh, uh, involves m- maybe many people and, and, uh, uh, and yet has great power in us. Um, and again, the, the ideas of her- heroism come from a mixture of things uh, that we get from the Bible, maybe, and the Christian faith, but also are internalized from our culture. You have many stories stored in your head and heart. Uh, you would like your life to be this kind of story. You would not like your life to be that kind of story. Uh, and, and we have hundreds of stories uh, stored in us that we, from our experience, from what we've read, from movies we've seen, from everything. Uh, heroism is about narrative. Heroism is about story. It's not just about single moments or isolated uh, uh, acts. Um, you want to grow to be like this person, not the other. Uh, your imagination is completely engaged. Any sense of heroism, you're using your imagination because it's in the future. Uh, your the idea of what you would want to become, and and you don't have it there to see. Your imagination is what you need when you don't have something to see in front of you. It's what your mind can make and and, and invest in the future. Your, your heroes have to do with the engagement, your engagement in your future. If you don't have heroes at all, you're relatively disengaged with your own future. Um, your imagination is disengaged with your future. Um, Again, you have heroes and your, your imagination is engaged. What is heroic to you may be, and it's very likely, quite different from what it is for the person sitting next to you tonight. Uh, more probably different than your moral values are different from each other. Every experience of shame that we have is connected to some idea of the person you want to be like, uh, but fail to be like. An experience of shame, you failed. Uh, and that's why you uh, experience that shame. Uh, it's as if if you tied a string to any feeling you have of shame, if you trace that string back far enough, you will find a hero or a sense of heroism that that shame violated. Do you see what I'm saying? Uh, it's there somewhere. It may be a long string, uh, it may be hard for you to trace it back, but there'll be some uh, heroic model that you fell short of. Uh, you feel shame when something happens that makes you feel negative heroism, unheroic, uh, more unheroic than you imagined you could be. You could think of the idea of a losing face. Uh, Psalm 44, all day long my disgrace is before me and shame covers my face. It's because our face is the way we, the thing with which we present ourselves to the world. And, and shame covers my face. It's, I don't want to see anybody. I don't want anybody to see me. I want isolation. I want to dig a hole and, and stay in it. Uh, the feeling of shame, depending on this whole stuff, I don't have time to get into the very variety of different ways shame can come at us. Tends to, but it tends to reduce you to the thing that you're ashamed of. 
I mean, in other words, that's all there is to you. You think of what your failure is that made you feel ashamed. Okay, that's you. That defines you. That's who you are. That's the huge lie that shame tells us. I'm not saying that's true, but that's what we can experience. Uh, A strong form of shame tells you you shouldn't even exist. You should disappear. You're not worth it. You're a mistake. Uh, but, but, But because it... The one thing is absolutized and, and made to cover all of who you are. There's a famous example in a pa- in a, from a passage from the old French existentialist philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre. Uh, being in nothingness, he says he, he describes a person in a hotel corridor back in the day when hotel rooms had keyholes and keys that you op- when you opened a ho- hotel room door with a, uh, with a key rather than a, uh, a card. Um, you could look through the keyhole and see what was going on in the hotel room. And he was living at that time. And he says, you're, you're intently concentrating on looking through the keyhole in somebody's door, uh, concentrating on what's going on inside. And then suddenly, you hear a footstep behind you. And there is somebody watching you as you are a peeping Tom, as you... Uh, are, are eavesdropping on someone else. Uh, he calls that an experience of shame because you know that you are not a peeping Tom. You know that you are certainly not a voyeur. Of course you're not. That's not who you are. Of course. But there you are. There you are, feet flat on the floor, floor and with somebody watching you. Uh, and, and uh, it'd be to- something totally different to take out a pistol and shoot out the lock, break open the door and arrest the people inside as a proper policeman would or whatever you're to do. John Wayne would kick down the door, whatever. That's fine. A different whole model of heroism. But this is not, not to be caught as a peeping Tom. And, and uh, the issue with shame, you see, is not just public embarrassment. Some people deal with shame as if it's uh, rather than private, it's a public embarrassment because you're ashamed before other people. It is that, that makes it worse, but it's almost more deeply between you and yourself. You were disappointed because you thought you were more heroic than you actually turned out to be. There may be some other people involved too who point the finger at you or not, but that's not the central thing. Uh, the, the, the central thing is your loss of trust in yourself. Your loss of trust in the version of your life story it gives you a sense of your own value. Uh, and so with guilt, you're breaking God's rules. With shame, you're breaking the story of your life that is made up of what you and you hope God hope for. Uh, the problem with our heroes uh, is that shame totally depends on who your heroes are. because it's what to you seems heroic. It is your heroes that make you feel ashamed when you don't live up to them. If nothing is heroic to you, nothing has honorable, glorious, or is glorious, you wouldn't feel shame for anything. You would be what, again, the Bible calls shameless, which is not, which may be a worse problem. Uh, We can touch on this later. Um, but not so many people are as, are as completely shameless as they might think. Uh, 
many people follow, follow Nietzsche and ridiculing heroes, but hold Nietzsche himself to be the hero. So it's a, he's a hero for gazillions of people who, who follow him by not having heroes. <laughs> Um, not all your heroes will be on God's list of recommended heroes. Not that God has a list of recommended heroes, but you know what I'm what I mean. That God, that there are heroes that could lead you closer to God. Uh, all sorts of people will not represent what to Him is real glory. Your heroes. This is what's so, very important. What I'm trying to say tonight can be tyrants in the shame that they lay on you. Watch out who you allow to be your heroes. Watch out who you allow to be your heroes, because they will make you ashamed of yourself for all sorts of things that are not morally wrong. Our society surrounds us with pictures and stories of people that we can never be like, doing things that we will never be able to do, going places we will never go, and looking like we will never look. Our media shows us women who are always poised, calm, beautiful, thin, gracious, intelligent, attractive to men, and in control. Shows us men who are never afraid, who never make stupid mistakes, always have a cool response to any situation, are always attractive to women, never are awkward, weak, confused, or lonely. Now, these people do not exist on this planet. And yet they exist in our imaginations if we allow them to be there and make us feel miserable. Uh, they do not exist on this planet, and they never have. This is not, you know, we're going to the dogs now, and no one's like this. They never have, lived, have, have, have existed. But they can make us ashamed of ourselves, disgusted of ourselves, loathing ourselves, ashamed for falling short of them. If, if these people are heroes, they will make us feel weak, helpless, boring, and ugly. And ashamed of ourselves for being all those things. People always complain about the younger generation, but it's the older generation that has created for the younger generation a whole pop culture where what is heroic is sexiness, popularity, and shopping. And in that, they make billions off the younger generation and have for several generations and will probably continue. Uh, but, but selling this notion of heroism or these notions of heroism. Um, if you don't measure up to the pop culture's ideals, they'll make you ashamed of yourself for not at least buying their stuff, which would help you get there. Uh, if we get our moral principles from Jesus and the Bible, say from the Ten Commandments, the Sermon on the Mount, but our sense of glory from Hollywood, Madison Avenue, or Wall Street, it puts us in a crossfire. I think of it as having one foot and the Sea of Galilee, and the other foot in Southern California. And it's a long stretch uh, between those two, and we will feel it uh, as we try and live in that way. It's not a good position to be in. Uh, as a result of this, many will feel ashamed of ourselves for all sorts of things that are just being who God made us to be and living out what we think God has made us to live out. If we get our moral principles from Jesus and the Bible... But we also get our glory, honor, and heroism from Jesus in the Bible. We will no longer have two bosses. We will no longer have two measuring sticks by which to measure ourselves and to argue uh, uh, and to get us in a crossfire. If, because Jesus 
is our ultimate hero as we read the Bible, one who lived life as it's meant to be lived. In the life of Jesus, you have human excellence. If you want to know what human excellence is, read the Gospels and read them again and read them again and study them and see what his life is like and listen to what he says about imitating him because he says to imitate him and it teaches to imitate him, not just by wearing sandals or something uh, or having long hair, uh, but but, but uh, uh, specific things that that uh, he, that are taught. Like there, there are basically six things that we're told to look to in the life of Jesus: his love, his humility, his service, his forgiveness, his willingness to suffer unjustly and his courage. And not that those words are magic, but those realities spin out into all sorts of other words as well. You find all that in the fruit of the Spirit. You find it in the Beatitudes. So you have a, a three-legged stool, in a way, um, of what uh, of, of how moral life is taught in the New Testament. You have the example of Jesus. You have the teaching of Jesus. You have what the Holy Spirit is doing within us and the fruit of the Spirit, all pointing to the same kind of person, different words, different reality, different uh, approaches, ways, but three different mediums of approaching us in our own growth. If this is what we want, it is from the Holy Spirit, and it's a great power to change our lives. Now, I want to look at the diagram, diagrams that I've given you, these lovely, wonderful diagrams. Um, I, I would have put them on a PowerPoint, but I didn't think I could get all my doodlings in the PowerPoint and still be legible by you. So the first one, the top one, that says integration of self-evaluation, that's uh, the perfect Christian, uh, by, by which I mean moral goodness to that person is what is moral is also heroic. What is moral isn't unheroic. What is moral isn't irrelevant. What is moral isn't boring. What is moral is heroic. What is immoral, sin and guilt, is unheroic, is shameful, is folly, and so forth. So success is moral goodness. Failure is sin and guilt. Uh, that's having your act together. It's holding what I've said, the morality and, and uh, honor and glory uh, t- together. But um, so, so moral goodness is, as Jesus says, hunger and thirst for righteousness. Moral goodness isn't just, okay, it's there. Yes, I know right from wrong. I know what's right. I can follow that. But it's hungering for what is right. It's delighting in what's right. It's desiring what is right and undesiring what is wrong. Like on the top here, from, from moral goodness, I think I wrote, wrote this on the next diagram, it's filled with aspiration. The two big words here on our, acting on our imagination are aspiration and aversion. There's an aversion for sin, guilt, folly. I don't have time to develop tonight, but I mentioned folly here because that's what the Bible gives us to help us chase out the wrong heroes, is the fool. And the, the, I'll, get, I'll get to that. So turning over this, the second page. And this is uh, 
who we are as we really are, where there's a division between our morality, morality, moral sensibility, and our sense of glory, honor, or heroism. You see, I've, I've pulled apart to the right and to the left uh, two parts of who we are. The center of that diagram, this is the, second, the, the disintegration of self-evaluation diagram, the second page. The center is sort of shaded. You see the way the center is kind of shaded in? The center section, the middle section. That is exactly as it was on the previous page. That is how it ought to be. In the Christian's life, there will always be some of us that is that way. Depending on where we are, that middle section where morality is heroic, where sin is unheroic, uh, that will be larger for the more mature Christian. That will be narrower for the less mature Christian. And these these lines will be moving all the time. Uh, maybe move radically in one moment or another in decisions we make. Uh, so so the the center section here is is uh, is as the page before. This is the way it ought to be. But but morality and heroism are no longer in sync here. But they're against each other. As we move to the left. Um, of center, that's morality that is separating itself from heroism. The morality here that's free, that's not in the center shaded section, is what morality is when you remove the heroic from it. Morality without heroism is morality as formality, morality as habit, morality as ho-hum. Yes, we know right from wrong, we know what things are, but there's nothing that moves us, that excites us uh, by moral success. This is morality without aspiration, without desire. It's, it's more just formality. Moral success is something we value it, but it's, but it's more of a formality. And also failure there, uh, on that down to the bottom of, of this left-hand side, guilt without much regret. doesn't bother us so much when we sin, when we screw up. But we're only human. Uh, what's the big deal? Uh, so sin, guilt doesn't bother us very much. We have a vast amount of modern psychology is built around m- minimizing our sense of guilt uh, so that we're not troubled by it, and also minimizing our sense of shame so that doesn't trouble us either. Um, so moral failure at the bottom, sin and evil are, are wrong, but without much regret. The extreme left side... Uh, of the left-hand side is is I put a little dotted line there is is more completely separated from is morality more completely separated from the heroic uh, and there we can success there is to be able to look at moral goodness and 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 be cynical about it and and be be just rejecting and 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 uh, uh, mocking. Of, of moral goodness, it's it's seen as unheroic, dishonorable. Uh, also, moral failure is this is where shamelessness comes in. Uh, you, people can do uh, completely dishonorable things, radically evil things, and feel no shame whatsoever. Can be proud of themselves. I think of this guy that bumped off all the people in in B- Buffalo. Uh, where the everybody else is 
more mixed up than I can understand. But he had an ideology, and that was a f- fulfilling an ideology. And he was phew, probably proud of himself for the why, for a while before he was shot. Um, the whole thing was a, was a fulfillment of a, of a high moral uh, commitment in his, in, his idea, in his mind, but, but, a, but an absolute evil. Uh, to shift to the, to the right of center, this is heroism without morality. <laughs> do you see what I'm trying to do? I hope you can see what I'm trying to do in this, in this um, uh, diagram. When you have heroism, honor, and glory independent of moral values, the big section here, the middle of this section, is heroism where mor- morality is neutral. This is where the majority of our pseudo-heroes live. People who are heroic for, uh, for, for things that have nothing, not, not for immoral reasons, but things that have nothing to do with morality at all. Uh, they make a big splash, so they're heroic for being a celebrity. They're, they're beautiful to look at, so we, they, they're um, seen as heroic. Um, but these are the folks that can tyrannize us. Uh, heroes of looking cool, looking good. Um, but but that's all that there is to say about them, and yet we can go after them, and we can be tyrannized by the heroism of these people that we project on them. The illegitimate, unnecessary shame that we experience just for being the person God created us to be. Here again, at the extreme right, uh, we, we, we also have upside-down heroism. Um, at the top, those who do evil see themselves as heroic in doing that evil. Um, uh, here's the big-time sinner, proud of humiliating or destroying other people. At the bottom, those who feel ashamed of doing what is actually good and right. Uh, ashamed of doing good, but which cuts against the cultural uh, uh, current of the time. There are many, for examples, there are many corporate cultures, we've heard just countless times on the news, where not lying is shameful. Not being willing to tell a lie, you're a complete wimp. You'll never get anywhere if you can't lie to get this, to get us all forward, to get the, the, the corporation forward. So, so, uh, not lying is, is shameful. Uh, so, so the, the, those, those extreme, both right and left extremes are are where you what you have completely without uh, the other, without morality, without heroism, heroism without morality. Uh, how does all this relate then to the gospel? Um, there's too many things to talk about here, and I'm not going to be able to cover anything like what I'd love to talk about. But how what is so important as we see ourselves as God sees us? And what we've been talking about is extreme negative pictures of ourselves. Now that is something that the gospel of Jesus Christ addresses. This is not something strange or out on the, on the fringe somewhere. This is very much what's, uh, what Jesus, what the apostles, what the prophets are addressing is the, is the, uh, the, the struggle we have of living with ourselves. And who are we anyway? Uh, it starts with, First of all, who we are starts in the first chapter of the Bible. We're made in God's image, the image and glory of God himself. He values us. We have dignity, which he's created and put into us. 
That's an anchor for us all by who we are by creation. Uh, that is creation, but now we are not just after creation, but after the fall, we're dealing with our own brokenness and sin, which brings about guilt and shame that we've been talking about. So we're still uh, uh, fallen people loved by God. Uh, it says we are fearfully and wonderfully made after the fall. It's not as if the fall uh, means that God just rejects us or throws us away. Um, we have uh, the question is though, what does God do with guilt and shame? What do, how does God manage guilt and shame? How does He help us manage guilt and shame? Uh, and the Gospel of Christ does a great deal here. And, and one thing that we're very familiar with, I think, or many of us have lived as Christians for very long at least, um, uh, the coming of Jesus into the world and his death and resurrection. Uh, through that, forgiveness for our sin is offered to us because he, uh, his death and resurrection were all about our sin, paying for the penalty of our sin. His crucifixion, he took the punishment that do us on his own back. Uh, the guilt that we deserve, he absorbed that. Uh, the result is that we, as we trust in Christ, we too are forgiven. Uh, not just the little sins, not just irrespectable, non, non-respectable uh, actions, but big sins, all of them. Uh, Paul in Colossians wrote, God made you alive together with him when he forgave all our trespasses, erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. So the legal demands that stand against us from our, for our sin and really stand against us legally are, are nailed to the cross and paid for. Uh, the cross cancels the debt that's, that's, that's against us. Um, so we can come into God's presence uh, because God in Christ has taken care of our guilt. It's not that we have dealt with it. It's not that we have paid for it. It's not that we have compensated for it. It's not that we have suffered enough for it. It's that he has paid for it so we can come into his presence clean and uh, have fellowship with him and be taken seriously uh, as, as, as human people. Okay, that's more familiar to many of us anyway. What happens with shame? What about our shame? Where does our, what does shame take us before God? Uh, and, and here, the gospel of Christ is not just about forgiveness. You can forgive someone and still not love them. You can forgive someone, but as I've often said, not want to take them on your vacation with you. If you are in court before a judge, he can say about a case against you, you're acquitted. Then the case against you is dismissed. You're free. But the judge doesn't necessarily want to spend any time with you, doesn't necessarily care for you, doesn't ask you home for dinner, uh, doesn't love you. They don't teach that in law school. So, but, but the judge has done what the judge is meant to do. The gospel of Jesus is that he meets us, though, not just in our guilt, but in our shame. God's answer to our shame is that he personally accepts us in the midst of our shame and unacceptability. Acceptance includes, but is greater, I think, than forgiveness, or goes beyond forgiveness. It's greater in the sense of it's relational. Forgiveness is more legal. It's more formal and legal. Uh, Acceptance is, is more relational. We've forgiven, but we've been forgiven by a judge 
who sent his own son to die to secure our forgiveness and that forgiveness. So our forgiveness is bought by the death of his son. But then the judge, after the court is over, takes us home into his own home and adopts us into his family. That is the biblical teaching of adoption. That's exactly what it means. The judge himself, who loves us, takes us home and adopts us into his own family. Uh, Something way beyond just a legal forgiveness, a forensic act that makes us uh, not guilty before the law. This is God taking us into his whole, into his family. The prodigal son came home in the midst of his guilt and shame. He'd broken all the rules that were before he even left home, let alone we did away from home. And he came home ashamed because uh, he had just failed uh, the American dream to turn rags to riches. He had uh, started with a great fortune, and he managed to turn riches into rags and experienced powerful negative heroism, promising, a promising young man who just flunked adulthood and, uh, and but shows up hungry at home. Uh, when he returned, his father forgave him, but also loved and adop- readopted him. He had sort of orphaned himself in a way, uh, and his father readopts him. Won't let him resign from the family. Won't just allow him to have food from the refrigerator because he's hungry, but, but reinstates him as part of the family you know, by giving him a ring and a robe uh, as a valued son and part of the picture at home. This is what awaits any of us who trust in Christ. He will accept us joyfully. In our acceptability, in our unacceptability, and as complete screw-ups, he accepts us and takes us in and adopts us into his family in the midst of our guilt and our shame. Not just when we're squeaky clean, but when we've made a real mess of things. I should say a real mess of things, because that's what is open to us. Not just who make little messes of things, people, but, but who really mess up in a big way. Uh, I often read, as I talk about this, one of my favorite passages out of one of Laura Ingalls Wilder's book, books, uh, Farmer Boy, because um, it's a picture of her son, or rather, excuse me, it's a picture of Laura Ingalls Wilder's husband-to-be as a, as a young boy who grew up uh, in a farm in New York around 1870 or in the 1870s. So he's eight or nine years old. He goes with his father to a village fair, <clears throat> And uh, they wander around and so on. And uh, he, he saw there in a pen of some animals that he'd never seen before. And they were actually mules, but he'd never seen mules before. And I'll read you uh, a couple of paragraphs out of this. His name was Almanzo. Almanzo left father, wriggled and squealed between the legs until he came to the, the, the bars of the stall. Inside it were two black creatures. He had never seen anything like them. They looked something like horses, but they were not horses. Their tails were bare with only a bunch of hair at the tip. Their short, bristly manes stood up straight and stiff. Their ears were like rabbit's ears. Those long ears stood up above their long, gaunt faces. While Almanzo stared, one of the creatures pointed its ears at him and stretched out its long neck. Close to Almanzo's bulging eyes, its nose wrinkled and its lips curled back from long, yellow teeth. Almanzo couldn't move. Slowly, this creature op- the creature opened his, its long, fanged mouth, and out of its throat came a squawking roar, which is written halfway across the page here. I'll spare you. Almanzo yelled, and he turned and butted and clawed and fought through the crowd towards Father. The next thing he knew, he reached Father, and everybody was laughing at him. Now, 
that to me is a really good description of shame. Uh, and and 30 seconds later, 20 seconds later, you'll think, how could I have done this? How ridiculous for me to be so afraid. But that's what happens. That's what happens. But the next sentence is really, really important. It says, only father did not laugh. Only father did not laugh. And I want... I want you to think of this as a faint shadow, a faint shadow of, of the way God accepts us in our unacceptability, in our ridiculousness of our shame. He doesn't laugh and ridicule his children or push us away, even though God only knows we are ridiculous enough. Wonderful passage in Hebrews 2.11 For those who came to the Father through Jesus, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers and sisters. Think about that. He's not ashamed to call you part of his family, his brothers. Because if you're adopted into God's family, he is your older brother. Jesus is your older brother. And he's not ashamed to have you his brother or sister. Uh, Think of how easy it is to be ashamed of your family members. Maybe you don't remember anything like that. Um, how easy it is to be ashamed of your children cutting up in public and doing, making a nuisance of themselves as they shouldn't, as they were taught not to do, uh, but, but in front of all your friends. It's easy to think, whose kids are they? <laughs> I'm interested in the cloud formations up here. Uh, or I can remember being ashamed. My father had a very big laugh. I was very ashamed. I thought, what a terrible racket. Uh, now, later I loved it and I did have wonderful memories of it. But I was ashamed because it somehow, to me, it wasn't cool. It wasn't cool. So, so I'm ashamed of him, okay? You know, it's, it's my own insecurity. I have no idea where that was coming from. But, but it's easy to be ashamed of your own family because you're identified with them doing something that you don't want to be identified with. You're, it's tied to you somehow. But, but here is God. You see, this is God. God is not ashamed to have you part of his family. Even, even being ridiculous. I'm not ashamed to have you as my brothers and my sisters, Jesus says. God the Father says, I'm not ashamed to have you in my family, no matter how ridiculous you are. So what I've tried to show here is we're not just an analysis of guilt and shame, how they work, but doing that a bit, but the, the gospel brings healing to these two theological realities and experiential emotional realities that we all have to deal with. And we're invited to take them to him. And the gospel addresses exactly these issues uh, that we feel. The gospel brings healing to both of them. Uh, God in both of them brings healing. And we often wrestle with the, with the self-rejection, the self-hatred. God knows all about that. But God meets us uh, in Christ with forgiveness and with acceptance in adoption. Now, th- these are things we really need to bring to, to see. This is what the gospel is. This is the, the, the breadth of the gospel uh, addressed to these, to these two emotions and realities. Just very quickly, before I end, I just I, because I'd love to be able to spend much more time on this. Um, we need to... I've talked about the need to clarify who your heroes are. You need to clarify who our, what our morals are, too. Uh, it's not just assumed that uh, we've got our morals right. Uh, the Apostle Paul spent 
you could you could break down all his letters into two problems. He's trying to deal with some people who want to add to the Word of God, uh, and other people who want to subtract from the Word of God. Most of what he has to say is oriented toward one or the other of those problems. Uh, in other words, we need to wrestle with uh, not adding to God's word moral principles that aren't really there, but that are part of our culture or part of our background or whatever, but aren't actually in the scriptures. Um, and, and so bind us unnecessarily or warp us in a picture of what we, we are. But we mustn't subtract from the moral principles of the scriptures. We mustn't think we are wiser. They didn't really know what we know now when they were writing these things. And so we can reject, throw these uh, principles out. Uh, so, so I need to back up and say we need to. It's a lifelong task to to keep checking up where where the, whether you're standing on the right principles or not. Uh, even harder, I think, with heroism as the, 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 the measuring stick of the heroic, because as I've said, we're very unfamiliar with it, uh, much more unfamiliar than we than maybe other cultures have been. Um, but but uh, uh, they're they're much more slippery. We don't have any ten commandments of heroism, uh, but 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 have to do with an enormous flexibility in being able to understand people and what makes people work, and what is what is um, realistic for me to aim at. There's a wonderful verse in Hebrews uh, thirteen seven. I think it says, "Look to your leaders, those who brought you the word of God." Consider the, the, the consider their life and imitate their faith. Don't imitate their life. You'll never do it. You're not them. Uh, you you don't have their gifts, their background, their whatever uh, education, their whatever else. But you can imitate their faith, their trust in God, and and that will stretch you. You try to imitate your, their their life, and you will turn yourself in knots. Uh, trying to imitate all the wrong things. Uh, there's something that you can't, that's out of your reach. Uh, but imitate their faith, meaning their trust in God. Uh, again, and we need to think of that as we think of the people to, to who should we imitate? Who should we look, look up to? Uh, I think it's, it's so important though here that we, that we look carefully at who our heroes are. And get rid of, and that's that, that's a flippant term. Uh, get rid of the wrong heroes because that is really hard to do. Uh, they don't leave when you ask them to leave. Uh, uh, it's a huge battle, and that's where, here, if I had more time, I would try and develop the biblical doctrine of the fool, because this is imagination. In heroism, we're dealing with imagination because what you can imagine about your own future. Um, your heroes live in your imagination. <laughs> The Bible wisely does not tell you naughty, naughty. You shouldn't have this person in your in your sack of heroes. Uh, the Bible instead gives you narratives of fools, of pseudo heroes, turning out to be losers and jerks. In other words, the fool always has egg on his face. The fool is never allowed to be glamorous. The fool isn't just stupid at all. The fool is arrogant before God and, and neighbor. Uh, and, and maybe enormously powerful, maybe very much the hero in all sorts of people's eyes. But, but uh, the, one of the ways the Bible gets at us in wisdom, wisdom literature is is giving us examples of the fool uh, being unglamorous. 
and, and, and being the jerk, ending up the jerk. And, and the, we would have the same response to the same sort of hero. Uh, and do you see what I'm saying? The, 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 the Bible would look us to aim us to the stories rather than a lecture on how should, you should make heroes. Look at the stories. Fill yourself with, with true stories of what it really is like to live this way and to not live, not live that way. So I'm, uh, I'm saying get rid of your heroes, but it's a huge, it's a, that's a lifelong task too and not at all easy to do. But if Jesus is the real hero who's revealed in these six things I mentioned before to imitate humility, love, service, forgiveness, willingness to suffer unjustly, courage, human excellence and glory is found in those virtues in living as he lived. No one was ever shrunken by living those out rightly rightly understood. No one was ever limited in their human capacities by living those out. They were always stretched by living them out. Um, so we have that. You have Christ himself, but also, and there again, I don't have enough time to talk about this, those who are Christ-like who are around us. Uh, people around us can be Christ-like. No one is very Christ-like, uh, but around us we will find some people who really show these Christ-like virtues, and they're there as visual aids for you. They're there to know it can be done. You can watch, you can listen, you can uh, you can imitate uh, people who live these ways in ways that are that are really uh, n- need to be inspirational for you, aspirational for you. Okay, uh, just concluding. Shame and guilt uh, are maybe a little bit untangled. Maybe I've tangled some up more uh, than untangled them. Uh, be careful who you allow to be your heroes. They can be tyrants beating up on you for just being who you are. Um, Christ-like heroes stretch you toward God um, and made and who God made you to be. Uh, God meets us in our failure, in our failures, in our guilt with forgiveness, in our shame with his love and acceptance. Tremendous gospel acceptance of who we are in some of our most difficult times in life. We began just uh, speaking about it being hard to understand ourselves. Uh, we can begin to understand ourselves better if we try and understand ourselves as God understands us. God says, I value you for the dignity I created in you. Even in the worst times of shame and guilt, God says, I forgive you, I accept you. Not because of your achievements, but because of my grace through Jesus. And I will never abandon you. We really need to believe that. Uh, I really forgive, accept, and love you, and want you to be in my family, and will never, ever leave you. Uh, if this God is God, uh, it's not our place to say, I know better. So I'll stop there. And... Um, any place anyone wants to go. You can have questions about the diagram. I hope that wasn't more confusing than uh, anything. Um, but um, yes, over to you all. Yeah, Sarah. Thank you, Dick. Um, I like you, was very moved 
by uh, Alonzo's father's response, that Alonzo's father did not laugh. And um, even just today, I was talking with Abigail about having a sense of humor about ourselves. And I'm just curious on your thoughts about like the way that like God taking us seriously frees us to not have to take ourselves so seriously. <coughs> and and like what what is a what is a good kind of humor about ourselves? Like a, like a like there's freedom in being able to be like, hey I'm in the tradition of the holy fool. Great, <laughs> you know? And it, and that like that's different, that's qualitatively different than kind of a self deprecating <coughs> self yeah. debasing humor. So anyway, I'm, just because it's it's fresh on my mind today and it overlaps in mm-hmm. well, I often joke about and raising our three sons if we had tried to do that without humor some of us probably would have ended up dead and some in, the, in jail <laughs> um, um, just because humor has such a wonderful powerful debunking function when rightly used but a lot of more modern stuff I haven't touched at all on modern stuff on shame it's written on it a lot of modern preoccupation is how can we avoid shaming people? And I think particularly children, parents have a huge capacity to shame them in a way that I think is awful. I don't think we ought to ever try to shame them. We need to discipline them. They may feel ashamed or may not, but to try to bring shame into their experience, I just think is really manipulative and, and terrible. So humor, humor can be hugely shame-inducing. I mean, cynical humor, cutting humor, can just cut people off at the knees and, and make people feel absolutely rejected and awful and so on. So humor is a very dangerous tool if misused. Uh, but that's because it's such a wonderful tool to be used right. And, and uh, I think we can... Um, to, to never make to, to never use humor to make a child feel feel ashamed, but to use humor to to see the ridiculousness of taking maybe the ridiculousness of taking what just happened seriously, because this isn't the end of the world. Uh, what happened? You dropped something, broke something, whatever it is. It's not the end of the world. Uh, so we can joke about how unimportant it is, uh, and and joke together about it, and, and why not? Uh, so much we can make um, ridiculous, and then it's less serious. Anger can be so, and that's what I mean about going to jail, going to being dead. Uh, 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 humor is fantastic at defusing anger, because uh, otherwise you can ramp up anger. Uh, and if you can get someone to laugh, even if they're on the verge of getting angry, You've won the day, uh, and and uh, so I think I, uh, laughing at ourselves I, this isn't quite the same point, but it's it's something I've, I've thought about a bit. I, I realize that a lot of the stories 
I had told our kids about myself. The kids always want to know stories about yourself and when you were growing up and stuff like this. Uh, I always, I somehow realized that the stories I told about myself, sometimes I was I screwed up, but always I somehow, after screwing up, landed on my feet in the stories I told them. You know, and I think, this is a bad idea. Because they'll think that I always, even when I screwed up, I always somehow landed on my feet, which totally was not true. Uh, and, and what a terrible education this is for them, because they, they know they don't always land on their feet after they screw up. And maybe life is just bigger and more difficult than they can cope with. Uh, and so I started telling them different stories when I screwed up and then got was very ashamed and very uh, had a very hard time number of things and and and, uh, and we come back to that uh, I broke training in our high school hockey team we just won a wonderful game of, against a team that we never beat but we beat them and a bunch of us went off uh, to a student's house and had a few drinks as an alcohol against training rules in high school bad deal <laughs> somebody ratted on us we were thrown off the hockey team uh, hurt the hockey team a lot because there were half a dozen of us. Some of them were pretty good, good hockey players. I wasn't a great loss to the team, but, but uh, uh, some of them were. Uh, and it sort of hurt the hockey team for the whole year. I felt really dumb and really so uh, stupid to do something like that. Uh, but we've, we've, you know, we've, we've talked around that and, and say it didn't end my life. Uh, or career and anything, but, but it's uh, it's important for stuff like that to come out, and the, that it didn't end up with you on your feet. I mean, eventually, but but uh, uh, I don't know. It's it's, but I think it's risk making light of something, unless it really is serious. Then of course you don't, but you don't lay it on them. Uh, we, we're very careful about using the word perfect and perfection in the home because we sort of believing in the fall don't believe that what we usually mean by perfection is really accessible to us so when we do something that's not perfect um, just say that's fine that's the way it, that's the way the way it is and it's a good job uh, so it's uh, uh, but, but I think I wish I could think of more examples of, of uh, the use of humor but, but uh, I think that's a very good instinct of yours to to think of something ridiculous about it. There's usually things that are ridiculous, plenty of them, plenty of them around that we can look to and defuse. Uh, because the father in not laughing was tremendously accepting, but there'd be all kinds of times when, um, in the in that that that's as you know that story. There's a lot of good interaction between father and son. Uh, and and uh, he makes a light. The father makes light of some things and fairly heavy of some other things. Uh, but he's always seen as a friend. He's always seen as someone who's really on on his side. Uh, yeah. Any other things? Can, yes, Ella. This is unrelated, but I um, you sort of touched on this idea of like modern psychology is so like frantic to avoid guilt and shame and I feel like in the past 
few years, that's been really appealing to me as sort of like a pendulum swing from feeling shamed for like fill in the blank and growing up in um, the church. And so, but like when, when, when the temptation to swing to the other side sets in, then I find myself like really struggling to accept like just the doctrine of sin at all and like sort of like what you were talking about about like shamelessness and the face of moral evil like we're all human blah blah um so I was wondering if you have like if you thought about what it looks like to sort of find that equilibrium that's neither like shaming yourself or accepting shame from other people um, but also has like a healthy view of like moral responsibility and like our fallenness. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, I don't like it to, to think of a pendulum swing and catching it in the middle somehow. Yeah. yeah. Uh, because um, the the real the, the reason that it's really good to be able to talk about shame and guilt is that it, shame and guilt is real. You have to somehow escape it, deny it, euphemize it, go into massive contortions to avoid looking at it honestly. And, and so many people are are relieved to confront it directly when the, when the Christian faith wants to do that. Uh, but But then the thing is, we have a solution to it. It's safe to look at sin and, and, and shame, or guilt and shame, without it wiping you out. Uh, because our, I, I, the, the book I wrote on identity, I was trying to say, the, the, and particularly then when I wrote it, the whole hope is self-esteem. Protect your self-esteem. Push everything away that threatens your self-esteem. And you have to leave a very precious life of hard work to not see people who would challenge your self-esteem, to not remember things that happened to you that challenge your self-esteem, and protect your self-esteem. When in in reality, even looking at your self-esteem, you do some lousy stuff. uh, And you have to protect yourself from it. Uh, The Bible says none of that. That isn't there. Look at it right in the face, and God sees it and accepts you and loves you anyway. So our, our sense of identity is affirmed because he loves us in the midst of all this garbage. Because we had the honesty to admit it, not to try and run away from it and hide it and, and, and so on, hide it from other people, develop a whole th- psychological perspective and therapy mechanism to avoid it. Um, I think a lot of psychology has shifted back toward having to look at it seriously. And, and um, all of psychology is enormously wide today in terms of what's going on. Uh, but, 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 but it isn't a sort of, uh, sort of uh, 50-50 for use of it uh, in, in, as a, as a, in the middle of a swing of a pendulum. But it's look at it straight in the face and say, yes, it's true. Not, it's not that every Christian is right in, in laying guilt on you or shame. And maybe what you've experienced is, is all sorts of terrible ideas of laying all sorts of guilt on you that they had no business laying on you. So that, that means you have to have the, what the Bible teaches really clear. And there's a huge amount in tribal, what I would call tribal fundamentalist Christianity, which is all kinds of false stuff they lay on people for, for um, you know, not going to church three times a week and da 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 da, da not wearing your best clothes on Sunday morning. You know, all, all, all kinds of things that are 
that are um, very tribal and nothing like them in the Bible. Um, but the main thing is that real evil is something we can look at right in the face and say, God knows that. God accepts. God even knows it's worse than I know, and he still accepts me. Uh, and so my confidence is in something nowhere near as fragile as my protected self-esteem, my self-esteem protected from all sorts of counter-influence or counter-messages that, that would reduce the, the, the esteem. Uh, but my, yeah, sure enough, I've, I screwed up here and I screwed up there and I probably will continue on this one. And, and yet, God is there and God has already accepted me. And, and so that, to me, is, a, is, is where we need to be. Uh, and then we can say, we can sail because no, we can go right into the presence of God and know that he receives us and accepts us. Uh, whereas, oh, I think I've already been talking about that. There's just lots of different ways that guilt and real evil in the world is not um, taken seriously. I remember you saw it again with some of these. Uh, I, I remember seeing it after 9-11, but I see it again with journalists after some of these last shootings. I remember after 9-11... <clears throat> A lot of journalists would talk about evil spelt with a capital E uh, as to what happened, what we've experienced is real evil. Uh, and later, several of them came out and said, I don't, I don't know why, how I dare to do that, uh, because I don't really know that there's such a thing as evil with a capital E, as if there was evil there. Uh, because without belief in God, it, what, is, what is evil anyway? Who gets to define evil? Who gets to decide what's right and what's wrong? what's good and what's bad without a transcendent point of reference. You can't. You can say, this seems evil to me. But but you see it after these last shootings as well. People coming out and talking about evil that they would be ashamed of talking about because they're secular They're secular in their whole framework. Now, we don't have that problem. Uh, we can talk about evil because with a capital E, uh, because it's there and we're not embarrassed by it. Uh, and and th- th- there's a gospel that that is bigger than it. And, and by talking about evil, we're not saying the human race is a complete loss. Not at all. God hasn't given up on us. Uh, so I, I think these the, the most hopeful and useful branches of modern psychology are, are figuring out ways of using uh, our moral awareness rather than stifling it. Um, I remember... Don't fly on this. Bruno Bettelheim, who was a not, it was a Holocaust survivor, but he ended up being a Freudian analyst in this country, wrote a fascinating book called Uses of Enchantment. It's about children's fairy tales and, uh, and the psychological impact of fairy tales. Uh, and he said a lot, of, a lot of people today, because you have Grimm's fairy tales and witches who are planning to eat their children and things like this and monsters in the woods, People today are saying this is utterly traumatic for, for uh, to, to let children read. We shouldn't shouldn't allow children anywhere near these books. We should dumb them. We should calm them down and, and so sort of make them nice and, and happy. And he says, no, that's completely wrong because we we want our children to be happy. We don't want them to be ever unhappy. We want them to do the nice things. But they know that they're not always good people, and they know that sometimes even when they are good, they don't mean to be good. They'd rather not be good. And so if we give them only nice sunshine literature, uh, we make them a monster in their own minds. Here's, this is a child psychologist, psychiatrist, 
uh, speaking here, saying how valuable it is. We, the kids at a young age, are given the bad stuff to reckon with, uh, even disturbing stuff like witches eating people in the woods. You know, I mean, woo, uh, monsters, uh, and and uh, sure, because there's a lot of enormous amount of terrifying reality in the world, imaginative, terrifying reality. Uh, so, I'm unapologetic about about uh, being <laughs> being willing and able to interact with 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 the categories of good and evil. I think I think we we hurt ourselves to avoid them. But having said that, it doesn't mean that you haven't been abused by them yourself by some people who are who are um, such and so inclined. <laughs> yeah, does that make any sense to you? Or? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. Any, yeah. Um, is there the term that comes up a lot in like drug abuse and HIV and obesity? So it is being stigmatized. So it seems to me there is a relationship between sti- being stigmatized being stigmatized and changed. Um, yep. we, we had, there was an opiate uh, in Allegheny County when we were living in Pittsburgh and they, they had formed a task force for our community to try to do something. And one of the meetings was a Pittsburgh Penguins um, a player who had gotten addicted ruined his he had a very promising <coughs> career and it ruined his career. And at one point he was in his apartment and the police came. And it was, it wasn't, you didn't end up going to jail, but it was the shame of having that, being arrested for that, that actually started him on the road to uh, getting over his addiction, and he, he had become rehabilitated. Mm. Uh, but when, the, in the discussion about that, um, the people running the program said, well, we, we have to be wary about personal responsibility. <coughs> In a problem of addiction, because then we're stigmatizing. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me that shame has a positive role. And, and yeah, I, I, so we should allow people to be stigmatized. Maybe. I well, I, I mean, I think if someone needs to be arrested, that's going to be. I don't think we should go after the stigma. You know, trying to spread stigma. Or, or make them feel it, but I mean, the, let, let's let reality strike. And, and I think shame is, is God given to lead us to repent, to lead us to turn. It's, it's uncomfortable, it's un, uh, <clears throat> unpleasant, but it's lead us to just like pain, putting your hand on a stove. It, it, uh, it, it of course, there's some definitional problems there because some people think that addiction is, is not a is something where you have any responsibility of it all. It's just a sickness. Which I think not many people say just a sickness. Uh, most would say that there's a, a, a level of responsibility. Uh, so it, it seems to me that, that uh, a lot of people would say similar things. That, that it wasn't until I hit the wall somehow, uh, whether it was the police or physical problems or whatever, that, that uh, brought me reality. And, and so I, I think it's a very it's a delicate thing because, I mean, stigmatize just blasting around and trying to stigmatize people as if that's going to do them good is obviously not not uh, any help. And we just drive them away and may, we convince them that they don't understand us, in which we probably don't. Uh, but but um, 
Yeah, I, I think um, some of the modern work on shame is on how not to, uh, because shame can, as I said, as I, in the talk, um, it can uh, absolutize the thing about you're ashamed and make you define, feel that you're defined. It, it, it defines you, and is is. Uh, gives you the sense of a, of a hyper negative vision of yourself, um, then we should try and prevent anyone from feeling shame at all. I just don't, th- don't think that follows, uh, and and because uh, I think sometimes it can really bring people up short and and um, give them the strength, the insight that the, the uh, sometimes it just need. Extraordinary, weird things are the the key thing that makes someone shift and be able to re- actually get better. Um, and, and I think this may be uh, maybe one of them. Obviously, trying to just stuff this in someone's face is not what, what's uh, what's any good. And they some of them have had that all too much. But uh, the idea of trying to never trying to prevent anyone from ever having a shaming experience, I think that's crazy. I think it's a, it's there and it will happen and it will. We need to rather not let that shame destroy people because that that it can. If it, if you're if you let someone sit with uh, a sense that this re- this reduces me, this ab- this absolutizes who I am, uh, and let them live with that, that's terrible, and and that's something we need to try and help people get free from. But but uh, and the Christian, there's nothing better than the Christian faith to do that. Uh, because God knows you, knows that about you, but forgives you and 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 accepts you and deals with you and and has a vision for your life into the future. Uh, but but uh, yeah, it's a it's a very hard world though the the world of addiction. Some of you may be involved in it in some ways yourselves, but it's a, it's really a uh, um, there's not a whole lot of surefire success rate in the, in the heavy addiction industry. A lot of people struggle for a long, long time. So, so, but I, I think you know there's some wonderful Christian works going on with trying to to use everything we can from psychology, but you, you, that that's, that's uh, works together with the Christian faith, but but that uh, uh, has the gospel with it too. Yeah, I don't know if that gets at what you. It, it's it's taking seriously both the that there is a a. a an involuntary problem in the sense of a, of a physiological uh, um, powered addiction uh, to, to addiction, but this, we're still decision makers. We're still choosers uh, at some level, and we need to appeal to that, the choices we can make to get them choosing in the right direction. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Speak up if you would. So. Sorry. Something yeah. positive that I heard about shame that goes along with what you were saying about how it connects us and allows us to receive forgiveness from God is that in the same way in that when we can confront our shame actually and understand that we are forgiven despite our shame, it helps it, our shame then acts as a gift from God that allows us to forgive others. 
because only in experiencing shame can you see what it's like to do something that you know is wrong. Yeah. And that gives you a greater capacity for forgiveness. Whereas if you've never done something wrong, it may be impossible for you to understand or forgive someone else who's done that. Yeah. Yeah, that's deeply biblical, <laughs> isn't it? As God has forgiven you in Christ, forgive each other. And and that gives us the power and the motivation to forgive and for, forgive and accept, which are both sometimes deeply costly things to do, uh, and not not just a, a nice polite gesture, but but cost us a lot sometimes. And because sometimes we are we are really deeply wounded ourselves, and and forgiving is a big is a big thing. But it's also uh, good for you. <laughs> Because hanging on to resentment over the long haul is about as unhealthy as anything we can do. So I'm, I used to be talking to someone who'd been through a real, really bad stuff from other people. I used to be sort of nervous about and very careful about suggesting they need to think about forgiveness. I'm not anymore. I, I mean, I don't wade right in because you have to be, you have to have the right moment, but now, no one suffers worse than the one who holds on to resentment that they really need to forgive. And, and uh, but understanding the gospel makes, <clears throat> as you've said, makes them more able to, uh, especially if they read Jesus' teaching carefully. Uh, it's pretty, pretty. Uh, yeah, it's not a whole lot of wiggle room uh, in Jesus' teaching about about forgiveness. Uh, but it's right. I mean, he's. And he can say, he gets to say, because he's forgiven us, and it was an unbelievably costly thing that he did to forgive us. Uh, but that's right. And all these things are they are good for us, but they're good as we reach out to each other, too. So that's a good point. Yeah, any other things we like to Yes? I think just something that's come to mind, like as other people have been speaking, is that, like you said, guilt and shame are are theological realities, but they're also emotional realities, and like any of our emotions, they they're point they're they're like diagnostic tools. Like, what is this? What is this a symptom of? Like, why? Um, and that's where I found like beyond identity and, and your teaching about this really helpful. Mm-hmm. Be like, I feel so ashamed. What, follow that string. Yeah. Like you talked about. Yeah. Like, where does that? Where? What's at the end of this string? Is it? Is it an idol, actually? Like, is my model <laughs> that I failed to reach an idol that needs to come down? Um, yeah, and I think you, you talk about that in the identity a lot more. Mm-hmm. But yeah. I think that's where the, the emotional part... It's not that, like, oh, if you feel ashamed, like, that's bad. And I think that's where a lot of, of, of like, pop psychology is. It's like, yeah. shame inherently is a bad thing, so we need to get rid of it as fast as possible. Instead of saying, like, well, what is this... It's doing a job that's important and healthy for us. And where did it come from? Because if you don't accept shame, you don't trace back where the shame came from. And and that, as you said, can be so important to 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 realize that good grief. I am steered by this jerk that I should have looked up to, and 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 um, uh, shouldn't be shouldn't be uh, um, sort of on the string. Because of my sick respect for him, mm-hmm. uh, so it's uh, uh, 
But it, it's such a nightmare in the modern world with so many, such an emphasis on visual images and uh, I think of the whole um, just, just world on online. Uh, so many things we can connect with and, and, uh, and trying to spend uh, our time making sure our image, our projected image is what it ought to be in every way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's a, it's a huge f- focus on things that are less than central to what's really important to us. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, any other things we don't want to throw out? Well, have a good evening then.